This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Merrily, merrily, Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? I am doing great. In fact, it is so merry here that it's actually snowing outside, so Um, it's just full-on seasonal here. Yeah, we've got snow out here, too. Snowed on Thanksgiving Day, and my kids, of course, thought that was a sign that it's just the holiday season everything's perfect and I know. it is really pretty and, and very merry <laughs> it is i know it's, I'm, I'm enjoying it it's been very nice it's very very chilly so i've been taking advantage <laughs> and you know reading which was really hard for me to you know to yeah. do but i've managed to pull it off somehow so. <laughs> way to go way to go i know thank you do you guys do a lot of i think i asked you this last year but a lot of decorating for christmas and if so are you already in that zone or do you wait a little bit or what what's your yeah we typically plan yeah, we typically do a fair amount. I, I'm more of a fan of indoors. I, I will usually, especially when the kids were younger and really wanted us to, we would do some outdoor stuff. To be honest, I could take that or leave it. It's always nice once it's done. It looks pretty, but I, <laughs> it's kind of a pain. Um, but I enjoy inside, especially the tree, obviously. So usually we'll do it sometime over this next week. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times if we're feeling inspired, we'll do it You know, the weekend after Thanksgiving. So far, we haven't done that this year. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I've been a little lazier, although we've still been also doing lots of other holiday type things. But how about That's you guys? Fun. Do you decorate right away? We usually, you know, our youngest wants to decorate before Thanksgiving, and we've always kind of said, hey, hold that. No, <laughs> we'll right. hold off. Um, but definitely, you know, around Thanksgiving, he wants to do it. And all of us mm. enjoy getting it set up. It's it's just kind of nice to bring it in. Thanksgiving is so early this year that we've got stuff out, but we haven't started really setting it up yet. We have a Christmas tree downstairs that is out and set up, but not decorated. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually getting a, a new Christmas tree for our upstairs living room. Oh, nice. And so we haven't, you know, set up anything up there. But we've got the boxes ready to go. The This year, though, our kids, uh, we have cousins around, uh, which has been a lot of fun. And they, you know, want to play in the morning, afternoon, and evening. And yeah. so, you know, I, they're really, they're older. They're old enough now that I can be like, okay, why don't you now go get this decoration out and set it up? And this one out and set it up. Exactly. <laughs> and they're not no. around to do that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're like, I'm not going to do it. No, I noticed that as our kids got older, it was nice, especially with Halloween, because that's another one. I enjoy it, but I'm like, eh, I don't really care to decorate all that much. So as the kids got older, it's like, you really want to do this? Like, you know where the mm-hmm. stuff is, <laughs> which is kind of nice. But yeah, do you do a lot of outdoor stuff? I picture you like the Griswolds on the vacation oh, yeah. movies, where yeah. it's the blinding, our, blinding like the sun. Our bill goes up, you know. No, <laughs> my kids would love us to do more. A few years ago, I did get some of those like, net light sets that Mm -hmm. are really easy just to throw on your bushes yeah those are really nice and that's kind of what we have outside then we got some leap wreaths that light up we did get a few other things this year like some bows for the they don't light up or anything but just for the fence to look festive so Uh, yeah you know even as a kid i i did want us to decorate our you know put lights up out on our house and my dad finally agreed to one strand that goes along the, the eve, you know? <laughs> right. You're like, <laughs> that I actually that somehow was, looks worse. Well, I felt it was plenty for me even back then. <laughs> oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> I had a friend who would decorate his house and also his grandma's house. And he'd be like, come and help me. And that's where I learned 
my lesson. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not, it's, I, I'm with you. It is so fun when they're up. It, mm-hmm. But the setup and the, and the takedown was yeah. a lot of work. And I guess for me, it's always been maybe, maybe next year I'll be, you know, fully inspired to do that. Right. Better. Exactly. But, you know, I feel like we got a lot of it out of our system. When the kids were younger, we did a fairly good job. We would do it all along the gutters and we would do, we had like a big extension pole and we would string up the tree in front of our house. And then we had several of those blow up, like, you know, Frosty the Snowman or whoever um, and some net lights. So it's not like we haven't done it, but I can't say that having done it, it really inspired me to continue doing it forever. (laughs) Well, I think we need you to do it this year. For our holiday episodes, we'll ah, record yes. those live um, outside for you. <laughs> <laughs> we might we'll need have, the. Uh... We'll have two sets. You be outside by your Christmas lights. I'll I'll be inside by a fireplace. Oh, okay. That so will that set seems... both moods. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> it would definitely set a mood. We might need to add the cursing filter onto mine. <laughs> Nothing like setting up the Christmas tree. Like once it's up, you're always in such a festive mood. But it's so funny. Like oh. Maybe some Hanna-Barbera cartoon cussing at the very least. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) All right. Well, we did uh, our last episode we did on bookish holidays, and we did get a little bit of listener feedback on that that I thought it would be fun to share if you're up for it, Paul. I'm definitely Uh, up for it. All right. Um, And because our listeners didn't tell us whether we could or could not share their names, I'll avoid that today. But in the future, let, let me know one way or the other, or, or rather, I don't know, maybe maybe we should default to the not sharing names rather than default to the sharing. We'll Probably. have to figure that out. But at yeah. any rate, uh, so one listener said that her first thought um, for us was Yosemite, uh, mm. which I've been to. I love Yosemite National Park here in the U.S., here in the West. And uh, she said that uh, spending a summer in the High Sierra, uh, lots of John Muir sites. Mm. And, and th- I think that sounds like a, a really good vacation. Oh, Again, it's very much on the natural the natural setting. Um, but I'm curious about the John Muir sites, his nature writing. And uh, I, as much as we've talked about nature writing, as much as you bring them up, I, I can't recall if you've ever brought up John Muir. It's funny. I I have read a little bit of his stuff, but considering how much I do love nature writing, he's not really one that I've hit a lot, but Hmm. not because I didn't want to. It's just, I don't know, for just whatever reason I haven't, but I really like that idea. Um, My, let's see, my brother's wife's mom and I have, we exchange books sometimes at different, um, you know, events and things. And she gave me a, a collection of his writings a Mm. while back because she's a really big fan of his she's shared with me over the years several another one from an author who does a lot of nature writing in alaska but john muir in particular she shared it so i do have some um and i do need to dig in but yeah i love that idea i've never been to yosemite believe it or not living in colorado i'm so close but one time i was flying somewhere in cal you know from colorado to california and i just happened to glance out the window and look down and it was like it was so crazy because I looked down and it was like, that's Half Dome, like the famous <laughs> mountain. I just happened to glance down and it was just right there and it looked so cool from the air. So it's such a beautiful spot. I, I would love mm-hmm. to make it there someday. Hmm. Yeah. You'd have to cross right through my neck of the woods to get there. So Ooh, maybe, that's true. Maybe Good we excuse. will have to, to make some kind of a, a get together. That would be that would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot um, of fun. But don't hold out. On, don't, you know, don't don't hold out for me. Uh, <laughs> right. If you guys get a chance to go and 
you know, you should, you should take that because it is, it is so, so pretty. Yeah, we definitely need to. That's a great suggestion. <laughs> um, another listener, this one from England, uh, said that it, our episode made her think of the first time she visited the Bronte Parsonage in Haworth. It was a wonderful and emotional experience. And then also a couple of years ago, I spent a few days in the small coastal town of Whitby in North Yorkshire, where part of Bram Stoker's Dracula is set. This is where Dracula first sets foot in England and where Mina is holidaying with her friend Lucy. I took a copy of Dracula with me and reread the parts set there, and it was wonderful to see some of the places that inspired the novel, the ruins of the old abbey, the cliffs, and the harbor. And Um, I love, this is the thing that I think is so fun, is when it isn't just, oh, this is where Dracula is set, but it's like, I came prepared, and I'm rereading, I'm getting into that headspace. That is so fun. I I really like that. (laughs) I do too. That's awesome. That's a great one. And um, then we got kind of an invitation on this next one, Paul. Another listener from England um, says that uh, he and his his wife, they live in Winchester, England. So if we plan to be in the area, whether as part of the tour or as a solo trip, we need to stop by. He says, my wife and I are both huge book geeks, so we'd love to show you around the Jane Austen circuit. Her grave in the cathedral, the bookshop she used to go to, her house, uh, and to buy you dinner. To yeah. say thank you for all the wonderful podcasts. Well, we can't uh, we can't say no to that. No. <laughs> as soon as I saw that come through, I immediately read it to my wife because I'm not assuming that, you know, our plus ones are necessarily, uh, you know, I'm not going to make them foot the bill for anything like that. But uh, no, oh, I, am. So nice. I am. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, no we, we would love to do something like that. And no one needs to, I think, feel obligated to to foot the bill. Um, oh. We just love the the idea that someday we might get to sit down with some listeners and friends that we maybe have never met in real life, um, and and have that opportunity. That was great. Did say was... can't offer accommodation unless we want to scrap it out with their adorable dog for a spot <laughs> on the sofa. Which I probably you know if the dog's adorable, I can probably win that battle. I know, I know, or exactly. at least at least be okay with a dog you know that's adorable. Make a little space, uh, you know, keeping me warm at night. So exactly, it doesn't sound bad at all. <laughs> but they do have another, um, another like memory. It says a few years back, I went to Soria, which is which inspired Antonio Machado's Campos de Castilla, which is one of my favorite collections of poetry. I had a great time nosing around his house, discussing his poetry with the guide, as well as wandering around the countryside he wrote so beautifully about. So thanks to to that, and then I've got one more. Um, unless you have something to, to say as you jump in there. I don't, other than it makes me so happy that we got all this feedback. I, I love, as we always say, I love getting feedback. And this episode seemed to prompt quite a few, which is exciting. Yeah. I met, I, did I say one more? There's two more, actually. Oh, great. <laughs> um, this is someone on Twitter said that he, had a, he and his wife had a fabulous New England literary vacation uh, years ago. Emily Dickinson's home and gravesite, which, you know, I, I loved our Emily Dickinson episode. And um yeah. That would definitely be something I'd want to hit. Walden Pond, walked mm-hmm. around it. Emerson's home, a replica of Plymouth Plantation, Salem, the cemetery where Mayflower pilgrims lay, including William Branford's grave. Said it was fant- uh, it was fabulous, especially to be in Dickinson's garden because so many of her poems describe it. Oh, and the bed in her bedroom was very short. 
I thought her, of her poem that begins, Ample, make this bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I think I've heard that before that people have said, I think it was hers and maybe multiple beds, you know, historic beds that are so uh-huh. tiny. <laughs> Where's the California king? All right. This next one um, is timely. And I will say this name since it's a frequent contributor and we've said his name before. So hopefully you won't mind. This is Jerry Faust. Mm. Um, he replied on Twitter and said, Toronto is lit city. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he meant to put an A there or if it's like Toronto is lit city. You know, mm. no no, no indefinite article there. Just yeah. the boom. My favorite novels by Margaret Atwood and Carol Shields have been set there. And the city is home to Michael Ondaatje, Miriam Toes, um, Andre Alexis, and other big talents. H. Wineswig's uh, Basic Black with Pearls from NYRB Classics is a mind-blowing Toronto book. Oh, yeah. So... And nice. uh, speaking of, that mm-hmm. is, is that our next book for NYRB Women 2023? I think I'm it pretty is. sure it is. I think it's because there's what, two left, I think, maybe? Two left. Yep. After yeah. after the one that we're both, uh, we're both reading. I noticed you, you put that on Twitter, or not Twitter, yep. on Instagram yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've got uh, Good Behavior by Molly Keene and Basic Black with Pearls. And I kind of think Basic Black with Pearls is the very next yeah, one starting I'm pretty sure you're right. December 1st. So. so good timing. Good timing. And then get get you to Toronto, Lit City. Yeah. Well, the funny <laughs> thing is Toronto, I've actually been there, what, three times now. My wife and I went to, on our honeymoon there, and then we went over to Niagara, and then we've been back there a couple times. And I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite cities on earth, but I have never explored anything with a literary bent while we were there. Um, I guess I just wasn't really either in that headspace or I wasn't aware that it was such a literary city. But now that he mentions it, it makes a lot of sense. So just we'll get an with excuse Jerry to go back and yeah. figure this out and then, and then, you know, check it out and, um, let, don't, don't leave any of the information out there. You know, send it my way too. <laughs> okay. For sure. No, any excuse to get back to Canada. It's one of my favorite places. I told you I haven't had a chance to travel very much internationally, only within North America, but um, I've been to Canada a fair number of times and absolutely love it up there. So that would be great. Yeah. Oh, all right. Um, a few people kind of as listener feedback, including um, within some of these very messages that I just read, asked particularly about NYRB women 2024 or uh, you know, what's going on next year, where can they find the list of books? Cause we brought it up on the last episode and uh, you know, Kim McNeil runs it. Uh, but I understand if you're not on Twitter or don't know where to find her, um, that can be hard to find. So I will respond particularly to those um, to those emails and messages to to give you the list to to show it to you um but also let's put that in the show notes this time around as a as a graphic i'll 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 get the very thing that kim sends out and uh hopefully she doesn't mind kim uh should i ask for forgiveness or permission if she you know (laughs) one way or the other i'm sure she doesn't mind uh but we'll share that in the in the show notes of the next episode so um I don't think graphics come through on the podcast apps in your show notes, but they will be part of the newsletter show notes. So if you're if you're subscribed on Substack, um, you'll see our show notes in full, including graphics and other other little elements. Uh, but that I'll put that there. But yes, I will also respond to those of you who asked. Particularly, uh, my apologies. It's been in in, in a couple of cases. Uh, 
shortly after that episode was published a mm. couple of weeks ago, but <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I haven't forgotten you and I will get you that list and hopefully you can join in. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And if for some reason someone can't figure it out or doesn't have Substack handy, you can always also reach out to either one of us mm-hmm. individually and we'd be happy to send you over the graphic as well. I would love to see more and more people join up because it's such a wonderful it's such a fun thing to do. And I'm glad to hear that there's so much excitement among our listeners for people wanting to hear more and join in because Kim picks some wonderful books. Yeah. And it's, it's a great, a great thing. You know, I Mm -hmm. I do have an admission to make. Um, I fell behind. I'm caught up again, but I did fall behind on this, uh, this book that we're both reading right now uh, because it's a collection of short stories. So let's preface this. What have you been reading, Paul? <laughs> it's funny you should ask. Um, yeah, no, I happen to have been reading this book by Tova Janssen. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, it's The Woman Who Borrowed Memories. I've been reading that, which is our current read. And I will admit, I actually am behind on it right now, um, partially because what you said, it's short stories. So you'll read a couple um, and, you know, maybe not have the same page count, you know, deadline that you do with other ones. At least that's what I found. I don't know if that's what you ran into. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so nice to revisit Tova Janssen and, you know, I can tell you what else I've been reading, but I wanted to give you a chance if you wanted to weigh in on, on this yeah. particular book. Oh, I, I am loving it. Tova Janssen, author of the summer book, fair mm-hmm. play and, uh, true deceiver, the very, very famous, uh, true deceiver, uh, three of my favorite NYRB classics. And I had, I had thumbed through this, uh, collection of short stories when it came out always like oh i can't wait to sit down and read that Mm -hmm. Uh, but this was the excuse to do so and just the way she sets up her stories the very the variety of lives that we're exploring and yet they feel connected to what i know about her you know illustration the cartoonist was a fun story um and she she you know does illustration and and all of that or did illustration and all of that um she's got booksellers and editors and authors and mm-hmm. uh, various kinds of artists as well as just people you know neighbors and people kind of having a good or a bad time depending on things and her her ability just to get in there and I don't know. They just don't feel like normal little shorts. The, the, the normal things you might capture from, from someone who's going through something. Uh, she captures the things that go unsaid a lot of times or. Yeah. Like, uh, no. And her settings, you know, I'm thinking in particular of the, it's the second or third story called black white and it's an homage to mm-hmm. Edward Gorey. And <laughs> it's just so amazing. Like the way she describes him going to this house and it's like, Basically, I can't remember how she describes it. I don't have that part open right in front of me, but this hill that or this house that's kind of leaning off the side of the hill and it almost seems like it's going to tumble down the side, but you can just picture it so perfectly the way she describes Mm -hmm. it. And (laughs) like we've said with some of these people who are the best short story writers, the ability within two to seven, 10 pages to just create not only these amazing characters, but these amazing settings, it's I, can't, I don't know how they do it. And this is absolutely a case where that happens in story after story. Yeah, I do have a couple. Of, so one of the reasons that I got behind is it, be, the leading up to Thanksgiving was busy right. uh, at work and such. And so I just kind of fell behind. But I, I don't know if I would have had they not been short stories. 
those are harder for me to read one right after the other in the same, like sit down and read or, yeah. and, and so, you know, I, to, to, to have that end and then have to do a new beginning is a little bit jarring for me. I, I, I welcome it. It's, it's a, it's still, a, I'm very glad that the, that short story collections were included in the read along, mm-hmm. not very much so, but I have, I do find them more challenging to push through and get every, all my reading done in the day. No, <laughs> I think that factored into it for me as well. And it's like, part of it is just, it's nice to sit with one, especially these kind of stories. Some of them are like mm-hmm. so bizarre and interesting that you don't want to necessarily like stop thinking about it. And so, like you said, sometimes I'll take a pause or switch over and read something else for a little bit, but yeah, I'm really glad that she included them as well. Um, Cause yeah, so far I'm loving them and I plan to do some catching up over the rest of the weekend on that. Nice. So you said you had a few other things to a few bring. other things. So this one will drive Dorian crazy for the um, going back to our ability to put down a book <laughs> near the end. Come um, on, he's, he's talking to me again. Let's oh, well, he may not after this. He'll, he won't talk to me. So as I've mentioned throughout the year, starting back in January, a group of us set off to read Joseph and his brothers, which is 1500 pages of, you know, Thomas Mons. I mean, it's he considered it his magnum opus. I don't know that everyone who has made their way through it in this particular group would agree that it's his best work. There's a lot of brilliance within it, but there's also some other parts that maybe, you know, are a little bit more work than it's his most work. It's his most work for sure. <laughs> so I have about 10 pages left. And last night I was thinking, should I just push through <laughs> after 1500 pages? And I was just like, Nope, not going to do it. So true to our, uh, our promise. I was able to do that. Uh, so I plan on finishing that one up today. Um, and or then tomorrow, the, you know, or tomorrow, you know, whenever, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the other theme that I've had running through this year has been, you know, my reading for the Republic of consciousness prize for North America, which I've mentioned several times. And so I just wanted to mention another book that never would have crossed my radar if it wasn't for this prize. And I'll be honest, based on this cover, it's called afterward. I, and it's by Nina Schuller. I was not necessarily drawn to it. It's this, I just showed it to Trevor. It's this kind of, you know, it's a bright pink cover with like the, these arms from behind reaching around this guy. And the guy is made up of like code, you know, computer code. And so, you know, we've talked, I think it was probably a year ago. We talked about the whole AI and like the, uh, there was like that period where, who was it? Several of the big authors, was it, um, Ishiguro and Ian McEwen both came out with kind of like, yeah. you know, I don't know, they weren't necessarily AI, but like cyborg or AI or, or whatever types of things. And so when I just, anyway, when I, all of that to preface to say what this one was not one that jumped off the top of the pile to me, but I stuck with it and I read it during a recent work trip and boy, I ended up really enjoying it a lot. It's um, I'll probably just read a quick you know, summary off the back. It says a pioneer of artificial intelligence rebuilds the love of her life. But when she discovers he's been feeding incriminating civilian information to the Chinese government, she'll have to decide whether to keep or kill him. So, you know, like I said, it wasn't necessarily something that when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, you know, not necessarily ticking a bunch of boxes for me, but it turned out to be a very enjoyable book. It's, it's a page turner in some ways, but it's not just that it's, it's actually really well, thought out it's pretty poignant 
in parts. And then it does have these sections that I wasn't expecting where it kind of jumps back um, and kind of around the world a little bit into some different characters' perspectives that made it where it wasn't just a modern day kind of AI novel, which, like I said, isn't necessarily something that would appeal to me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I won't go in and read in a section since we've had a pretty good discussion already. But yeah, afterward by Nina Schuyer, if anybody out there is interested in, in that description, I would I would definitely encourage you to, to check it out. It is from Clash Books. So again, like I said, it's just fun with this prize to, you know, I read the first couple pages, put it down. And then I was like, no, I want to go back and give this a fair try. And when I did, it, it caught me up and I, I read it within a couple days. So very good stuff. Oh, excellent. I'm glad that you're enjoying it. Yeah. Um, and I never even heard of Clash Books. I had that particular publication by them. So I love I that about the prize. I do too. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So I, I based on that, I'll, I'll check out some more of their books for sure. Because it was unlike anything that I've read before, which is always a good thing to be able to say. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, one thing that I'm going to tell you, I am not reading right now. Oh, okay. But I'm about to start. <laughs> so um, it is another read along that I'm doing um, through December uh, with my Trollop group on oh, yeah. Instagram. It's uh, Christmas at Thompson Hall and Other Christmas Stories by Anthony Trollope. It's, it's what's contained in this really lovely little uh, penguin uh, hardback. Oh, that's pretty. Just a really fun kind of a small size uh, hardback with the pretty birds on the cover. It's part of a series that they did. This was the only one that I was really drawn to. I, I looked at it and thought, oh, it's a series. That means, you know, probably have to get, get them all. And no, I don't think so. There's A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It'd probably be lovely in this edition, but uh, how many of those do I need? I don't, right. I don't think many more. <clears throat> Frank L. Ba- or, sorry, L. Frank Baum's The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus could be magical, but not really one that I'm like, oh, yes, I want to grab that. Right. Um, A Merry Christmas and, and Other Christmas Stories by Louisa May Alcott. You know, I'm, I'm not a... I, I've never quite gotten into into her work now then there's the night before christmas by nikolai gogol now that one mm. i'd probably want but i already have it um from new directions so again didn't really need it and then the nutcracker by eta hoffman no interesting where i'm like all right this is the one for me this is yeah. the trollop um, collection of short stories it's got five stories in it and there is a schedule but of course you know re- read at your own pace enjoy it if you can if you want to but we we're reading Christmas at Thompson Hall first, and I think um, I think I'll probably have it read by the time this episode goes live. But I haven't started it yet uh, because it it kind of we're reading you know basically one a week or or so between now and Christmas. So we're I, I can't wait. I love Trollope. I'm just so excited to get into his Christmas uh, stories. I I I can't remember Christmas ever being a part of any of the six novels i've already read i was gonna ask yeah i don't remember it being part of the warden for sure well that'll be fun you'll have to tell me how he rates as a christmas and a holiday you know author yeah yeah i I will i will i'll report back (laughs) cool well that's exciting and that'll scratch your itch until you delve off into the next Uh, i don't know i'm i'm just about to dive in on that i think i think i won't have to wait yeah can you forgive her is the next book i'm going to read of his to start the six books of the Palliser uh, mm-hmm. series. 
and I finally finished, you know, um, uh, the Brothers Kardamasov. I finally finished Red Comet, both of which were, you know, not quite, but darn near a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it's it's okay for me to start another big one, even though I'm still going through War and Peace, which yes. I'm just loving, by the way. It, it's getting more and more deep and um you know the first the first hundred pages or so there's so much bustle and people and talking oh yeah now we're finally getting into heads and having people wander kind of thinking and you know in the night and i love that that space uh for for these stories so i'm i'm really enjoying war and peace but i think i can throw on this next uh palliser novel as well yeah well that's exciting yeah the same thing when i'm finishing joseph and his brothers here you know today it's crazy. Like that has been such a part of my life for this whole year (laughs) that it's like sad, but also, you know, there's always that feeling of, at least for me, sometimes when you finish a big book, it's, you'll miss it, but it's also like, Ooh, now like looking at the shelf, like all that choice out there for what you can find to replace it is kind of fun too. So yeah, I'll have to report back on what I end up doing, but very cool. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, Let's move on to our main topic of the day. This one is about the Dalkey Archive. We've been promising this episode for a little bit. Um, scheduling just didn't didn't allow for, uh, you know, we couldn't quite get it uh, lined up with our uh, previously. We, we said we'd have a guest on this episode, and that has not panned out. But we wanted to go on and talk about the Dalkey Archive, one of our favorite publishers over the years. Yes. Do you have a memory of when you first learned about the Dalkey Archive? And then let's get into talking about, you know, what's, what do we think when we think of their books? You know, what, what kind of books do we think of? What, what personality uh, does this publisher have that pulled us in and all? Yeah, that's a great intro. I was trying to think of that. I don't necessarily remember what the first experience I had with the Dalkey Archive was. I don't think it was one for me where, it was recommended as a publisher. I think it was more, I kept hearing about all these cool books and these books that really intrigued me and either picking them up or adding them to my wish list. And then all of a sudden it started to dawn on me how many of them were coming from this mm-hmm. one publisher. So for me, it was more of a, I guess the chicken or the egg thing, but it was more just realizing how many of these cool books were out there that were on my shelf. And all of a sudden it's like putting two and two together. Wait, you know, this is like a, you know, a very common thread. And so the types of books, I, I would say, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, just experimental often um, stuff that has a very, in some cases, a niche appeal or a niche audience. I think, you know, from having heard Chad Post, who has kind of taken over describe the the mission over the years it's one of those things where like i don't think they let sales interfere with a book that they really feel passionate about if there's a book that they feel like needs to be out in the world you know i'm sure that there is you know some calculations that are done but i feel like they're willing to take risks on books that other publishers maybe aren't um and you know so i don't know if it's like kind of an independent spirit i I would say is maybe one way to describe it um Mm -hmm. and it's just the the willingness to take risks, I think, is is something that I would use to describe them. But what do you what do you think? Yeah, I think experimental is a great way of putting it. 
there's a there's a darkness mm-hmm. um, to a lot of their books. Not all of them. There are fun ones too. Like <laughs> one that I reviewed a while back is Carlos Fuentes' uh, famous vampire novel Vlad (laughs) Mm. I don't actually know I've never talked to anybody else who's read that book it's a lot of fun and one of the books that I I'm going to list today is one of the funniest books I have ever read Um, but but there is also uh, sometimes and I'll get into these too um, a darkness in some of the in some of the works that uh, that I sometimes feel you know, they, their books are sometimes kind of weighty. And I don't mean that in a, in a problematic sense, though there, there is, you know, the real heft of some of them. Um, some of them are quite long. We're waiting for publication of, uh, you know, republication of Miss Macintosh, my darling. Yes. And that's a hefty, hefty, hefty book. Mm-hmm. But even that one, you know, it, it's going to be hefty to hefty, heavy lifting to, to get into it and through it is my understanding. Mm. Uh, but you go into them kind of excited for that, that wrestle almost. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times. It's a challenge, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another big one that they just came out recently was that we've talked about is Antagony. And mm-hmm. that is one that it keeps calling to me from the shelves. Maybe that'll be one of my big ones that I read in the new year, but yeah, they do. They, but then they also have a mix. They have some really tiny. Oh Yeah. Know, ones too. And, and one of my favorite was that last year, I think it was last year that it ended up in my top 10 was Goats and Meyer by David yeah. Albahari. And that's another one that they put out and it is extremely dark, but also one of the most powerful books I've ever read. So I think that that we've talked about this willingness to take an unflinching look at different aspects of the world or at humanity that can be so powerful. And I think that's one of their strengths for sure is just the, the willingness to support authors and artists who in many cases are willing to look at the tough parts of history or, you know, different things like that. So, yeah, yeah. I was listening to an episode of beyond the zero, the podcast that uh-huh. is one of my favorites. It's a really good one. And um, Ben, the host had Chad post on as a guest and Ben said something along the lines of Dalkey might have the best back catalog of any publisher and I was like, wow, that's really high praise. But then I started thinking about it. And I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are contenders, but it'd be hard to argue with because it, they it's in there. Around. Yeah, they've been around forever and they have just steadily published so many great books and masterpieces and hidden gems that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that that I, I think that that is not um, an inaccurate statement to say that they're at least in the running for that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, and, and that does bring to mind another publisher been around forever fantastic backlist that is you know i can see their books being back and forth um they probably have in t- at times published the same books just depending on rights and such but new directions mm-hmm. yeah um though i sometimes think of dalkey as being a little bit more out there sometimes you know in my perception um maybe maybe rightly or wrongly uh but some of the stuff new directions has published like i, I can't really see Dalkey publishing uh, Yoko Tawada, for example. I, I, I just don't... There's New Direction sometimes publishes things that are just really interesting and fun, but that, that just don't... They're maybe not quite that grave. And so it's more that I think New Direction maybe publishes a, a larger variety. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but they also New Directions publishes Celine, and Celine would absolutely fit <laughs> absolutely in, in the Dalky archive. You know, depending on on uh, rights and timing and all of that kind of stuff. So it's funny you mentioned that because there were a few when we were trying to think of different books to highlight for this episode. A book came to mind, and I could have sworn it was Dalky, and in some cases it was New Directions. So, like you said, there's definitely some overlap mm-hmm. between them, but they're both two of the the great you know, independent publishers out there who are doing just willing to take risks, like you said, with some overlap, but also some very unique things about each of them. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked yeah. about this a while back. I mean, it's just been very encouraging. Will Evans and Chad Post have kind of, you know, taken over Dalkey and they're working together to kind of, you know, not resurrect it because it's not like it was gone, but, you know, there's been some public struggles that they had with just different distribution and printing and, and different things over the years. And so they've recently launched this whole essentials line, which is really cool. And that's part of what, uh, when Miss Macintosh, my darling comes out, it'll be part of that. And some of the other books that I'll mention today have been republished under that line as well. So there's lots of exciting things going on. They refurbished their, or redid the website now, and it's, you know, a very good experience to go on there and shop. Um, And I, during, again, going back to that, um, podcast with Ben and Chad. Chad talked a little bit more about Miss Macintosh, my darling, and how, you know, it's still a work in progress. And I reached out to him, it was a couple of weeks ago, and just asked for an update. And he said that Will Evans is currently investigating printers to see what's possible and that as soon as they have an arrival date, they will spread the word far and wide. So hmm. we all continue to wait as patiently as we can. It's one of those things I've seen a lot of people say, yes, I cannot wait for it. I'm very anxious, but at the same time, I really respect the fact that they're, they're doing it right. I think they feel a sense of responsibility to make sure that they make the right deal, you know, figure out the right publisher, do it in a, a version that's going to be something they can be proud of and that will be very accessible to readers. So it's, a, you're torn between the fact that you want it tomorrow, but you also, <laughs> you know, it'd be a bummer if it came out and it wasn't all that it could be, you know, for whatever reason. Right. So I really respect the fact that they're I feel like they have some responsibility that they're taking to make sure it's done the right way. So, and if you really wanted it, it's available for, you know, hefty prices online at various mm-hmm. places. So <laughs> no, it's true. And I was actually thinking the other day, I, I just out of curiosity, I've talked about our interlibrary loan that we have here in Colorado. And I know every state has some version of that. And I did look it up and there were some different versions that were mm-hmm. available from various universities in the state or in Wyoming. So if I ever get, you know, to the point where I just can't stand it anymore, as long as they'll let me renew it, you know, what, 40 times to make sure I can get there. <laughs> can I have this for a year or so? <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> I might be, I might be about done with it one night, 10 pages left, but I'll, I'll need another checkout period. Exactly. Still. <laughs> I'll get to it in the next two, three weeks, you know. <laughs> oh, well, and there, one other thing that's kind of fun is Chad has posted um, on their blog, on the 3% blog. Mm-hmm. And they may be cross-posted on the Dalky Archive website. I'll have to look. Various articles that he has written about the history of the Dalky Archive. Yes. And they are they are just fascinating insights into the, the well, the history of the Dalky Archive, you know, clearly. But right. it, um, various books, um, authors that they've worked with, um, some of the struggles, some of the ups and downs. Yeah. And then, you know, all with the hopes of, hey, here, we're, we're, we're 
pushing this forward where I think a lot of us thought that when, you know, their, their founder, mm-hmm. uh, John O'Brien, when he passed away, that that would be the end of the Dalkey archive. Right. And thrillingly it is not. I know. No, I'm so glad you mentioned that because there, I'm sure it's still around. People could find it. One of those posts that Chad posted was um, going through John O'Brien's, like basically his personal library or archives of all the various ways that he had cataloged in a very eccentric, but fascinating way, the various works they'd done, the stuff that he was planning on looking into in the future and just, you know, shelf after shelf of books that they'd published. Um, And so if anybody gets a chance to check that out, if we can find it, maybe we'll stick it in the show notes or at the very least, I think people could dig around and find it relatively easily, but it's just a fascinating look into both John's mind. And like you said, the, the history of the, the archive. And it's just, I, I guess eccentric would be another way to describe a lot of the books, but it's also fascinating that, you know, it sounds like John himself was maybe eccentric in some ways. And I only feel justified in saying that because it sounds like a lot of the people who knew him best have used that word to describe him. So even though I didn't know him personally, I feel okay using that term, but it's, it's interesting how in some ways, especially early on the press took on parts of his personality, I think as well, (laughs) risk-taking and eccentricity being two of those things. And, and, and yeah, even, even sometimes like at the end, um, a willingness to be like, this isn't actually for you. <laughs> yeah. These, these books we're publishing, we don't, you know, we're, we're going to do them our way and, and on my schedule. And if you never read it, that's fine. <laughs> right. That's how it felt sometimes, but yeah. yeah it's like a, pu- it, a punk rock ab- attitude of just like, <laughs> we're doing it for the art. Like if you want to come along, that's fine. Well, and, and, you know, as we talk about experimentation and doing it for the art and all of that, I do have to mention Arno Schmidt's Bottom's Dream. Yes. Um, by, uh, you know, that was published a few years ago and translated by, you know, your uh, very close acquaintance over this year as you've read uh, Joseph and his brothers, you know, John E. Woods. Yes. Um, just a fantastic uh, feat, you know, hard I know. bound. I don't even know how much that must have cost to produce. I can't think that they made a dime just because of the cost of production on those beautiful artistic volumes seemed so high to me Mm -hmm. and virtually unreadable, (laughs) you know, the, the text that came out of it, um, to me at least. Uh, and it, it's, it's a fantastic thing. It is a, it is just as a, as a physical object, you know, there's something to it that is worth, worth your time and investigation. But I, I still, I still want to understand it better and see if that gives ever kind of some kind of foothold Mm -hmm. to venture through the text. But in a way I don't care either, but that's, what's so crazy about it is it's like, you know, clearly, you know, if, if Johnny Woods is invested, there's, there's stuff there. He's not just doing it for the, for the money, you know, like (laughs) anything like that. Um, but it was very experimental and and something that I could not, I could never come. I can't, I can't even, I've read the first page dozens of times, just trying to see if I can even go from one sentence to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's tough. You know, there are some guides, some, I think, but they're very cursory. Um, and, 
but that's that's in the Dalkey archive. You know, that's 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 the kind of thing that that they have done. I would say that might be the maybe the most extreme example. The books I'm going to bring up today, I enjoyed reading from page one to the end. Just mm-hmm. loved everything about them, and yet there's also that that willingness to go there for something like Bottom Stream. Well, just how important that is. Like you said, whether who knows how many people have read it cover to cover, but just the fact that it continues to exist and now it's taken on this mythos of like, you, you'll see people who actually own a copy or they'll see a copy somewhere in like an antiquarian bookseller or some, you know, high end bookseller there, there's these copies floating out there and it takes on this like mythos. <laughs> that's so fascinating. And yeah, like you said, whatever, you know, value that it brings to individual people. Just the fact that they were willing to take a risk, like you said, probably didn't make a dime, <laughs> but it, it continues to exist. And it's something we talk about. I think that is kind of what art is all about. And I love that they did that. And someday someone's going to be able to, to crack it in English too, you know, and, and put something mm. together that helps a, a more, you know, I, I won't say the word inept, you know, meaning in every way, but some of us who, who are going to need some real handholding if we ever hope to, again, have any have any idea how things link together on there yeah uh, so anyway we should probably get started on our on our three books that that we have selected uh for this but we do want to mention you know as we've done on these publisher episodes in the past we want some people to who maybe maybe you already love the Dalkey archive and need to get some more of their books or you're sitting there thinking who is what is this and you'd like to get to know their books. We want to do a little giveaway. And again, because shipping costs to the UK and around the world are so expensive, I, I'm going to have to limit this to the to the US only, um, especially at this time of year with the holidays. Um, uh, our shipping prices do go up um, to, I guess, protect postal workers <laughs> right <laughs> from, from way too much work you know put, put make us think twice before we send something um but we we want to to get three books three dalky archive books from the backlist uh to send to um a lucky listener somewhere here in the united states um so what we'd like you to do is per usual just send us an email or a message or reply on on substack that lists um you know, your experience with the Dalkey Archive. Are you are you to them freshly or is there some that you've read that you've loved? Tell us a little bit about that. And then list uh, something from their from their list that you're most interested in. The winner will will choose the winner. Um, and what what we'll probably want to do with this one, Paul, uh, is maybe let this one go a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what I'm thinking is rather than choosing the winner on our next recording date, uh, which would be December 9th, would be to give a deadline of sometime during the week of December 10th through the 16th. Uh, a little bit more time to to think about this and get in there. Um, but how about we say, get us your response by Friday, December 15th, any time of day, as long as somewhere in the world, it is Friday, December 15th, it will count. Perfect. And we'll get with the winner when they when they win, and we'll figure out three books to send your way. Yeah, that's great. I love that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And and like Trevor mentioned, you know, as much information as you want to give us about your experience with the Dalkey Archive, books that 
you're very interested in. And maybe if you have a favorite book of theirs that you've read, anything like that. Um, it's just always so fun to hear about different people's experiences with these publishers. Like you said, whether they are longtime fans and, and, you know, completists, or if they're just coming into it brand new, it's, it's really fun. So that's going to be going to be a good holiday giveaway. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Let's see if we can inspire anybody to pick yeah. a book that we, we have loved. What's your first book, Paul? So my first is very, maybe low hanging fruit, but it's at swim Two birds by Flan O'Brien. And of the three I'll talk about today, this is the one I read probably the longest ago. It's probably been a decade or so, but it's also one of the very first books I think of when I think of Dalkey, which is probably pretty fitting because one of Flan O'Brien's other books is titled <laughs> The Dalkey Archive, which was the inspiration for the name of the press. So that works out pretty nicely. Um, but this is, we were talking about experimental. This is a pretty crazy book, often described as metafiction. Um and it's largely narrated by this Irish literature student. And his part of the narrative, you know, mostly consists of kind of a frame story. So the section's focusing on him. You know, we learn about his daily life as a student and some of his family background and that type of thing. But that's when it starts to branch off. Um, and it ends up breaking off into kind of three separate stories. The first one focuses on this creature from Celtic folklore called a puka. And this is kind of one of the things that happens a lot in this book. There's all kinds of characters and myths that pop up throughout the book, which is very fun and honestly, sometimes pretty confusing as well. Um, and then the second story that pops up, he introduces someone named John Furisky, who we eventually learn is actually a character who's been created by a separate student at the college there. So you're starting to get the idea of why it's, you know, the metafiction part pops up here. And then the third main story that comes up is made up of various characters um, from Irish legends. So we get to meet Irish heroes like Finn McCool and Mad King Sweeney, among many others. So already it's starting to branch off into all these various you know, things. But then to make it even crazier, all these stories and threads start weaving together and characters begin popping up at random times in the different storylines. And then there's a whole separate fourth story that crops up partway through. So... There's obviously a lot going on in this book, and I'll admit, like I said, it's been a decade or so, so I don't remember a ton of the details, and I'm definitely due for a reread. But if it sounds daunting to you or you're a little bit intimidated, I, I came across a Slate review that I think was really nice describing O'Brien's style, and it said, quote, it might seem to promise a descent into a daunting realm of disorientation, but to bear with him is to be swept into a peculiar landscape in which a coming-of-age story set in modern Dublin a fairy tale set in the Middle Ages, and an absurdist allegory about the frustrations of writing complement one another with a persuasive internal logic. So I really liked that. I think it is it is worth it. Um, I, I do remember it re required a, a fair amount of work and concentration, but it was also really fun. We talked about how these are dark. I mean, this is a funny book. Um, so I'll just read one quick little excerpt from it to give people a quick taste. Okay, so yeah, this is just a quick taste that'll give you an idea about the book. It says... A satisfactory novel should be a self-evident sham to which the reader could regulate at will the degree of his credulity. Characters should be interchangeable as between one book and another. The entire corpus of existing literature should be regarded as a limbo from which discerning authors could draw their characters as required, creating only when they failed to find a suitable existing puppet. The modern novel should be largely a work of reference. Most authors spend their time saying what has been said before, usually said much better. A wealth of references to existing works would acquaint the reader instantaneously with the nature of each character, would obviate tiresome explanations, 
and would effectively preclude mountebanks, upstarts, thimble riggers, and persons of inferior education from an understanding of contemporary literature. So I really like that. I, I feel like it's almost like could have been on the cover as a description of this book. Um, so even though I mentioned at the beginning, um, this is one of those that like Dalky Archive, they have so many good books to branch out into, but I would like to reread this one very soon. So I've, have you read this one? No, that's one I haven't read yet. Yeah. I, in fact, I've only read a couple of their books that were originally written in English. Most of the mm. time I think of them as a publisher of literature and translation, which they certainly are. Right. And probably what I look for in them. Um, and honestly, I, I think I sometimes am very intimidated by what I've heard about Flann O'Brien's um, books and such. You know, they, they feel like, isn't it weird? Some books I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. I, you know, that sounds tricky and I'm excited right. to read it. And others I'm like, oh, that sounds too tricky. <laughs> I know. No, I, I do that too. And I can't remember what inspired me to pick this up. This might be the first one of theirs that I read when you asked earlier, now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. So if so, I, I decided to jump in the deep end, but it is, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it is difficult. There's no getting around that. But like I said, my memories of it are just that it was so much fun. And, and it was really funny and, and all these random characters jumping in and out of the timeline and, you know, it gets a very convoluted and, and messy, but in a really good fun way. So, um, and like I said, it, it kind of worked out that I thought it was interesting that one of O'Brien's books was actually the inspiration for the title of the press. So that's kind of cool. Well, I think that's awesome too. Let me go on to mine. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite different. This one is, I would say, a little bit less intimidating to get into, though it, it might still frustrate, you know, readers who are looking for answers and you know getting into puzzles and want to figure it out and such. Mm-hmm. This one might might be a little bit tricky on that end. Um, this is also in honor of our our guest who is going to join us. I, I believe he was going to pick something by Jean Philippe Toussaint. Uh, at least I think so, and that makes sense since the Dalkey Archive is published. I don't know, 10, 11, 12, you know, somewhere around there uh, of Toussaint's books. Uh, but the one that I chose to highlight is his 1991 novel, Reticence, uh, that was translated from the French by John Lambert in 2012 for the Dalkey Archive. It's very short. This is 128 pages or so. And it's the the only book by Toussaint that I have read. And as so often happens, I'll read it and be like, oh, now I need to read all the rest of them. Right. I haven't done it yet, which is silly because it's been 10 years since I read this one. But I loved it. It's 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 a, it's a one of these that, again, I know would frustrate some, but I love this kind of stuff where here we meet a nameless narrator. He's 33 years old, and he has gone on a holiday to a fictional island called Sassuelo. And he has his eight month old son with him and he, he seems to have gone to this Island to visit the Biagis. Who are they? I don't know. (laughs) I would assume at this point, some old friends, you know, someone he's going to, to see. And, you know, before he got there, he, he sent them a letter saying he'd be in town. Now that he's there, he just can't seem to make that visit. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So here's what he here's what we get at that kind of early part. It says, to a certain extent, if I'd come to Sasuelo, it was to see the Biagis, 
Until now, however, held back by a mysterious apprehension, I'd always put off the moment of going to visit them and steered clear of the area around the house when I went for walks in the village. Even on the day of my arrival, when I was still planning on going over to their place, as soon as I'd got settled into the hotel, I'd stayed in my room all afternoon. Two days had now gone by since then, and I was starting to wonder at the fact that I hadn't yet bumped into them in the village, even if I'd been careful to avoid their house every time I went out. And so we're like, why are you avoiding them? Why don't, you know, if all of this was set up so that you'd go there, you, you toted your infant son with you, what is what is happening? And it just gets more and more, more and more weird. Of, of course, he, he's, he's a little bit paranoid. And he, you know, the narrator becomes more and more convinced something is wrong. It's like, yeah, it's wrong with you. But, <laughs> right. But he thinks the Biagi, who we, we haven't even seen them, you know, we, to our knowledge, he hasn't even encountered them. We don't know what they're doing. They don't, maybe they don't know that they're here, but they're getting closer and closer to, to him. And that they seem, he, he actually thinks they might be spying on him now. <laughs> It's like whoa, okay. And where is the mom of this uh, this infant son? Like it is so, it is such a strange but wonderfully um, packed with uh, suspense and paranoia uh, book. Nice. I, I highly recommend it. And so there's a reticence by Jean Philippe Toussaint. That's great. I have to admit, I don't actually know anything about that author. Um, for from what you've said, he is very well represented. So I need to change that yeah that sounds fascinating yep there you go there's your there's a good starting spot though again um he has some that were nominated for the best translated book award uh that you can also look into because it doesn't seem like you can go too wrong yeah awesome well i will follow up with another slim book and this one i know for a fact that you've read um it's europeana i hopefully i'm saying that right by patrick (laughs) rednick is that how you say it europeana Rednick. yeah i don't Yes. Yes. Yes, Sure. We'll go with that. (laughs) So yeah, I mentioned my previous pick was something I hadn't read for years, but the other two that I'm going to talk about today are both very recent reads. Um, And yeah, this book was translated from the Czech by Gerald Turner. And Trevor, the reason I know you read this one back in 2011 is because I found your blog post about it, which had a lot of very positive (laughs) and interesting things to say about it. Um, So this is a short book. Like, like I said, like the one you just described, it's about 125 pages or so, but man, talk about packing a lot into a few pages. This one covers a lot of ground, at least in theory, it covers the entire 20th century. So how about that? 120 pages, the entire 20th century. Yeah, and he Um, gets it all. He gets it all. He gets it all. He touches everything. Yeah. (laughs) Now the style is really unique. It took me a little while to get the hang of it. But then once I did, I found this a really propulsive read and I read almost the entire thing during a really short plane ride. So I'll give a couple of little snippets here um, just to give people an idea of the style. It says, psychiatrists said that in many people, the First World War provoked traumas that had been previously hidden in the unconscious. And in the 1920s and 1930s, the people started to be neurotic because they were not adapted to their inner or outer state. And in Europe in the 1960s, 25% of women and 15% of men were neurotic, and journalists called it the disease of the century. And in the 1970s, the number of people suffering from depression also started to rise. And at the end of the century, every fifth citizen of Europe was depressed. Sociologists said that neurosis, neuroses and depression mirrored the cultural transformation of Western society in the 20th century, and neuroses mirrored a society dominated by discipline and hierarchy and social taboos 
and that it was a pathological expression of a sense of guilt. So how about that? <laughs> no, as you can tell from that section, it's it's a very strange, unique style. And for a lot of the book, you're just bombarded with facts like this. It's just, you know, it keeps coming and coming. I'll, I'll read another really quick snippet here. It says, the Americans who fell in Normandy in 1944 were tall men measuring 173 centimeters on average. And if they were laid head to foot, they would measure 38 kilometers. The Germans were tall too, while the tallest of all were the Senegalese fusiliers of the First World War who measured 176 centimeters. And so they were sent into battle on the front lines in order to scare the Germans. And he goes on and on like that. It's just a really unique and bizarre format. And I saw someone online described it as the 20th century on a Twitter feed. <laughs> and I kind of like that because it is, it's almost like this Twitter feed where you're just getting bombarded with the steady dose of information. And yes, it all is pertaining to the 20th century, but it doesn't necessarily always follow logically from one sentence or paragraph to the next. Um, so it can sometimes seem a bit random. But then as you read along, you start to notice there are some themes and recurring ideas and images that kind of start to let you get a grasp of what the author is doing. And what I took away from it is him highlighting both the great achievements of the 20th century, but also some of the massive missteps that took place. You know, so he's focusing a lot on, you know, humanity's attempts to fix some of the wrongs of the past, like, you know, through new ideas like communism or scientific advancement, you know, he'll, he'll kind of focus on those. But then he'll veer back to the reality that even when people have these positive intentions, often mankind is, is making progress or taking steps, it seems like. But then we find out, no, it's just kind of repeating history. So, you know, it's really interesting. I came across an interview with him, with the author on Czech radio back in 2018. And he said, the book was created on the basis of three words that I chose during the conception of the novel as characteristic for the 20th century. They were impetuosity. The 20th century was more impetuous than others. Infantilism. Again, the 20th century was more infantile than others. Finally, scientism, which was not born in the 20th century, but was fully unleashed during that period. So the moment I had gathered these three words, the aim was to write an impetuous, infantile, and let's say a pseudoscientific novel. This is the result of a sort of holy lexical trinity. So like I said, Trevor, I know you mentioned it um, in mm -hmm. your blog. And, and you mentioned one thing that's another little bizarre tidbit about this book is there's marginalia scattered throughout that's off to the side. And it doesn't really, it, it does connect to the text, but very cursory ways. <laughs> I think I'll quote from you. You said nearly every page has one or two passages written to the side meant to highlight what is being said, though these passages are often ridiculous because the marginalia leaves out pieces of information, highlights the insignificant portion, completely changes the meaning of the passage, or is just ridiculously pointless. <laughs> and I liked that. I mean, it's, it is, it's so weird, but I don't know the the Twitter feed is a very good comparison, I think, because it, despite it being sometimes disconnected and disjointed and confusing, you find yourself going back to it again and again, and it draws you in. So yeah, it's a really interesting book and I'm really glad I, I tried it. Oh, good. Yeah. That, that was, I don't remember it super well, mm -hmm. but I remember really enjoying it and um, had actually even forgotten about the marginalia until you brought it up. And then I was like, Oh yeah, I remember it. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> so weird. But again, it, it ties right into what we said about this publisher. They're willing to just try things that maybe mm -hmm. another publisher would be like, no way. And they're just like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, what is your next book? I, 
I'm going to cheat, but it's for a purpose, if that's okay. okay. Not just cheating to cheat. I never do that. No. I <laughs> cheat never. when it's it's for a benefit. <laughs> for me, you know, just anyway. <laughs> um, two books. Um, uh, and a, a little bit of a trigger warning as well uh, for listeners. Th- th- these two books are, are very focused on suicide. And so I want to make sure that that is, that is clear going in. Um, and the reason that I bring them both up is that these are, these are two very heavy books that in a, in a way could be read as, um, you know, suicide notes of the authors themselves. And it's interesting because I didn't know going into the second one, what it was about. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking this happened again, Mm. you know? Um, so the first one that I'll bring up is it's called suicide. It's by Edouard Levey. Um, he published it in 2008. Well, it was published in 2008. Um, he actually uh, died by suicide uh, in October of 2007. Um, he he hung himself, and he had delivered the manuscript for this book, Suicide, to his publisher uh, like 10 days before before he took his own life. So it's published in in 2008, and I first heard about Levey in the spring of 2011, when the Paris Review uh, published his When I Look at a Strawberry, I Think of a Tongue. And LeVay was very much, uh, apparently, you know, kind of this autofiction. In fact, one of his books that was nominated for the Best Translated Book Awards called Autoportrait, where he's really trying to get the, the essence of, of people through little details and things like that, including himself. And just, um, you know, interesting interesting things. But this one is a fictional book um, about a friend who committed suicide, but in many ways it is reminiscent of his own friend who committed suicide um, 20 years before, uh, something that he brings up kind of on the, almost on the side, it felt like, in Autoportrait. But at the same time, when you read it after, you know, his own suicide, it's hard not to to think about the connections there, but he's, he's talking about, um, his friend. He says, your silence has become a form of eloquence. And, um, you know, just, I don't know, it, 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 it is, this is heavy stuff for different reasons than like literary, uh, heavy lifting. This is heavy mm-hmm. because it's someone who is dealing with something, uh, difficult and, and hard, emotionally wrought, but also, um, you know, le- legitimately concerning, and all of that, and stuff that I don't know how to talk about all that much, uh, but just still, it's still a very good book. It, I think, it is very much worth reading. And the other one uh, came out a year or two later. It's called um, Through the Night by Stieg Seiterbakken. Oh, and sorry, um, uh, the the first book, Suicide, was translated from the French by Jan Stein. Um, and this one, uh, Stieg Seiterbakken's Through the Night, was translated by Sean Kinsella from the Norwegian. Um, it was published in 2011 in its original um, language. Uh shortly before the author committed suicide in January of 2012. And so by the time it came out for us in English, you know, uh, he, it, which was in 2013, 
you know, it, it had already happened. Um, but again, it's someone kind of writing their own grief of, of someone else's suicide on the page. This is how through the night begins. Um, our narrator, Carl has, is grieving the suicide of his teenage son and says, grief comes in so many forms. It's like a light being turned on and off. It's on and it's unbearable. And then it goes off because it's unbearable, because it's not possible to have it on all the time. It fills you up and it drains you. A thousand times a day, I forgot that old Jacob was dead. A thousand times a day, I remembered it again. Both were unbearable. Forgetting him was the worst thing I could do. Remembering him was the worst thing I could do. Cold came and went, but never warmth. There was only cold and the absence of cold, like standing with your back to the sea, ice-cold ankles every time a wave came in. Then it receded. Then it came in. That's wow. the start of this book. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful writing. H- horrific, you know, in, in its in its tone and in, in what it's going through. And it just keeps on keeps on going, you know, but but it it is it is its own little tale. Um, but again, this is the the second time. You know, in, and I probably read these fairly close together that I'm reading a book about suicide by someone who right after it was published or right before it was published um, took took their own life. And uh, yeah, it's it's th- these are two very powerful, powerful books that I, the, the reason why I think they are important still is as, as hard as the subject is legitimately. I don't have these personal struggles in my own life at this time. Hope I never do. Um, but this is a way to be somewhat privy to some of the thoughts, some of the struggles, some of the some of some of that from from a perspective. Not all of them by any means, but from something, and it opens my eyes to having more compassion, more patience, more concern, uh, less judgment on this particular topic. And so mm-hmm. I treasure that, that these two books are, are there and available. Um, again, tricky to be like, and, and they're so well written when that's somewhat beside the point, but it's also the, the avenue by which they communicate what they're talking about and the, the trickiness of it. So highly recommend these two books, not maybe as companions, even though that's how I'm presenting them here, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as, as powerful books. And again, the Dalkey archive saying, well, well, let's publish them. Mm-hmm. So uh, those sound amazing. I think it points back to what we've talked about, where one of the powers of literature is the ability to look at tough subjects in an unflinching manner. And like you said, there's a shared humanity there where, you know, whether you've experienced something similar or haven't, it allows you to, at least to some degree, get some insight and, and share some of that humanity with somebody who has experienced it. So, yeah, thank you for sharing those. Those sound really good. Yeah. Um, so my last book is one that will be familiar to people because it is by an author that we actually had a whole episode about fairly recently. So my last one is the book Trilogy by Yun Fasa. Um, maybe not a huge surprise to any of our listeners who were paying close attention during our recent chat with Damien Searle, since I mentioned I was trying to read a bit more Fossa in anticipation of that episode. 
And so, um, as I mentioned, I read the first few books of his Septology a, a year or so ago, but his recent Nobel Prize was obviously a good nudge to kind of jump back in and read more of his work, which I know a lot of people have been doing. So this book I thought was just absolutely mesmerizing. Um, we did talk a lot about um, during our conversation with Damien about how Fossa has sometimes an unearned reputation among some for being pretty tough going. But I think this book is yet a, just another example of how inaccurate that, you know, stereotype or not stereotype, but that assumption is. This is another slim book. It's just about maybe 150 pages. But as the name trilogy implies, even within those 150 pages, it's actually made up of three even shorter novellas. The first one is Wakefulness. And then there's one, Olaf's Dream. And then the third is Weariness. So as it kicks off, we're following a pair of 17-year-old characters named Azel and Aleida. And hopefully I'm saying their names right. And people who've read Falsa will recognize both the A theme with characters with the A starting their name. And also, I believe the name Azel in particular comes up maybe in all of his books or at least in in a majority of them. Um, And so these two are leaving their small hometown and heading to Bergen. So as we join them, they're homeless and wandering around the city, just trying to basically find a place to stay and a way to make some money. And so there's some echoes of kind of the, you know, Mary and Joseph story going on a little bit here, I would say. Um, And then so as they're doing this to make matters even more complicated, yes, Alita is pregnant and very close to giving birth. Because this book is so short, I don't really want to give away too much of the plot, but I'll just say that we start to get some hints that there might be some mysterious or sinister things going on with their backgrounds and their relationship. And so as the book moves along, we're slowly given more information about what's happening in the background. Um, And so, you know, like his other works that I've read, there's this haunting repetition in the prose and the dialogue that just keeps coming back. It cycles through these themes and these repeated phrases and things like that. And it slowly builds up themes and ideas over the course of the book. Um, You know, I came across a a review by Michael Orthofer that I thought put it very nicely. He says, Fosse's style and presentation are effective. There's something grand and epic to it. And it resonates both from novella to novella and then as a whole long after. The elliptical presentation and the way the story loops back again and again is not straightforward, but it works surprisingly well and to very good effect. This and the simple rhythms of the language make Trilogy a very strong story. And then I found one other quick summary. I'm just going to, um, by a blog, someone named Morose Mary. <laughs> and she said, Fosse's use of simple, repetitive language to create a profound, poetic love story and love song to the unfortunate lovers fighting against fate and life is an endearing read. It has many mystical as well as theological overtones with comparisons to the nativity story, but all inclinations of religious themes begin and end here. His work is his own, and it's a sharp shard of a gem which pierces and penetrates with sly mastery, which evokes real sentiment. So I really liked those two descriptions. Um, Like I said, I was a little reluctant to go too much into the details of the plot because it is such a short book. So I thought that that might be a good way is just to share a few other people's thoughts on it in addition to all the FOSA talk that we had with Damien Searles. But if anybody else is still looking for an entry point or the next step in the FOSA um, journey, this one I would really highly recommend. It is, it is dark. It will not shock anyone <laughs> to hear, you know, but as we've said with Fossa, there's also some very fascinating, you know, not just theological, but just human nature explorations that are going on. And, and the relationship of the, of the couple is, is very fascinating as well. So I forget, is this one that you've read? No, Trevor? nope, no. it isn't. 
Okay. But I'm, I am, I am in it's, I'm going to, I'm going to get through all that we've got mm-hmm. sometime. Yeah, <laughs> me too. So now a very good choice. I, I saw your, your, you know, the, the indications that you were leaning it that way. And I'm glad mm-hmm. to hear more about, about it to reinvigorate and, and just reconfirm the, you know, the, the, the excitement that I have to keep on reading Foss's work. Absolutely. And just before I forget, just, I didn't mention, but it's translated from the Norwegian by May Britt Ackerholt in that particular one. So it wasn't Damien this time around, but he's done a great (laughs) job with a lot of his other stuff. For sure. All right. My last one, Paul, very different from the others that I've chosen in, in many ways. This, this is probably my favorite Dalkey archive book because it is so funny <laughs> so fun just i remember reading this and laughing out loud and just i don't know it is called demolishing nisard and it's by eric cheviard uh, it's a 2006 novel that he wrote translated uh, from the french by jordan stump for the Dalky archive it's short again 135 pages so desiree nisard was a real literary critic who lived from 1806 until 1888. <laughs> and he, he's kind of, I guess he's, I mean, I have no idea who he is, right? I don't have the right. first clue, but apparently what, what, when he is known, he is known because, you know, here he lived through the 1800s, but he hated French literature of the 1800s. He much preferred, you know, classicism of former centuries and, you know, just seems like an all around idiot you know (laughs) stodgy um literary critic well this book by cheviard is has a narrator who absolutely despises nisard just hates hates him hates him hates him hates him hates him and you know you can read into that and be like okay he's he's being critical of anybody with this kind of stodgy attitude but i don't even care it's it's just so funny to think that here is someone writing in the 21st century who hates and has such a personal passionate hatred for this long dead person. <laughs> and so here, here's, here's how it goes here. Here's, you know, it starts kind of like, okay, you know, here's this Nisar and tells us a little bit about him, but then he goes, he is the slime at the bottom of every fountain. Irretrievably there has been Nisar. How can we love benches? knowing that Nisar often pressed them into service. <laughs> Gently stroking a cat's silken fur, my hand inevitably reproduces a gesture once made by Nisar. Strawberries are the less delectable for Nisar's love of them. I would welcome the immediate snuffing out of the beneficent sun that also warmed Nisar. Sharing his filthy bathwater would inspire no greater disgust. If he could be besotted with a certain Elizabeth, how can we not be put off by the passions of love. Our innocence forever blushes at his brutish experience of this world. Nisard ruined everything in his wake, cities and countrysides alike. If he one day bit into a hazelnut, how can we still have a soft spot for squirrels? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh. I love these ridiculous, ridiculous uh, con- you know connections and and conclusions of this just absolute <laughs> hatred, and, and and the book keeps going on with that. Um, the narrator's wife um, 
kind of wants him to just back off because no one knows who he is and who cares anyway, but the, the narrator can't even help but lament that the very world exists. Is that once there was nothing, and then there was something. And as it happened, this was a bad thing for the result, was Nisard. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And in between each of the little sections of the book, there are little things as if Nisard were still alive and writing. Like there's one um, here that says... Um, in a Tuesday, August 3rd interview on RTL radio, Desiree Nissar reaffirmed his position that France's minimum wage was overly generous. <laughs> just, just hating this. Um, and, and it's sprinkled throughout is Nissar's uh, biography, a little bit about that. Um, but man, it is, it is so, so, so funny. And I know there's points to it and all of that, but the, the best thing about it is just that the writing is, is, is fun. And I, like I say, I, I, I was laughing out loud. I've read this one a few times just for the pleasure of like, how can you like a hazel or it's not even how can you like a hazelnut? It's how could you even like squirrels? They also <laughs> like hazelnuts like Nisard, you know, <laughs> I was going to say squirrels got caught in the crossfire of that little beef. <laughs> wow, that sounds really funny. It is. It is fun. And Cheviar, you know, he's published other books um, with both. I think with the uh, with Dalky Archive, but also with Archipelago. Um, okay. Just, just good stuff. But this one's my favorite that I've read. Uh, again, just because c- comparing the, you know, being warned by the same sun as being in someone's dirty bathwater is. Just, I don't. I don't know. It's just. It's very clever. Um, very. <laughs> ridiculously hateful, but in, in ways that I, I like to see, um, mm-hmm. you know, it reminds me, John, John self has, has, uh, posted this before, but there are a couple of people on Twitter that every once in a while get into like a, a little spat where mm-hmm. they're insulting each other, but they're insults like this. So clever that I'm like, man, you guys are, are so good at this. I hope you, I hope you forever hate each other. And I don't think they really do. I think right. it is just a, a fun Stick. thing of, you know, how can I make a crazy um, little little insult that is that is fun? And they're very good, but it's it's kind of like that. And and this one just being connected with literary criticism, it does make you think a little bit about that stuff too, but yeah. not nearly as much as it just makes you laugh. So <laughs> I love it. That's a good way to end. I, um, I thought it might be, you know, after after some dark books and after the reputation you know, it's kind of like with New Directions, we talked about them also being worried. We have the reputation of, you know, eat your vegetables um, kind of literature, but they publish Cesar Ira, you know, yeah, they, they publish this kind of stuff that is just so fun and well-written. And I think also harder to, to find if you're not aware, you know, if there's no one there kind of doing that work for you. So thank goodness for these publishers that we really can go to and say, look, I don't know if this is going to be a dark book or a funny book or or what, but I have faith in in you guys for pulling it out and deciding to 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 do the work and and you know hire someone who will be the translator and work with that translator get the book into into English. It is wonderful to have them. Absolutely, like we've talked about, it's such a gift to have these publishers, like you just mentioned where they're doing the work of curation to the point where I've read enough of their stuff to know I would pick up anything that they published and mm-hmm. take a chance on it because chances are whether I love it 
don't necessarily care for it, I will not be sad that I read it. It's always a rewarding experience one way or another. So we're very lucky to have them. Can I well, put you on the spot? Really? Oh, go ahead. Well, on, on that line there, one of our, our friends on online, um, she was a part of my old uh, Mooks and Gripes forum and is also now part of the Goodreads forum. She doesn't get on all the time, but I know there have been many years where she said that the only project I know I'm going to do this year is read every book that the Dalky Archive publishes this year. Oh, wow. And she does it and comes back and reports on them. And some of them she doesn't like, but there's that faith regardless of, hey, this one wasn't for me, but it doesn't stop me from having faith in the next one or, you know, all that. So just wanted yeah. to, to point that out. And they are, they are a publisher that you could, you can do that with. Um, at least it, it has been, and probably will continue to be one of these that you can, you can make that goal because they don't publish, you know, a lot of books every year. Mm-hmm. And they're another one where if I'm in an old dusty bookstore in the middle of new Orleans or whatever, they're one where you will find them, you know, scattered throughout. You, you'll see that you know, that name at the bottom of the spine and, and it'll maybe a book you've never even heard of, but I, I always mm-hmm. think it's a nice little treasure hunt to not only look for titles that might catch your eye, but if you find one of those publishers hidden away, grab it yeah. off the shelf, you know? Well, I was just going to say really quickly, we asked the uh, readers to just pick out a book or two that they might be interested in that they haven't read. Is there any books from the Dalky Archive either on your shelves or down the road that are calling out to you. And I can just kick it off. I mean, I mentioned Antagony. That one continues to really appeal to me and I hope to get to it very soon. And there's another one that I bought within the last year called The Burn Book that they came out with. It says it's a travelogue, a memoir, a quote, diary of an isolated soul and a meditation on the myth and reality of race in mid-century Europe and America. Hmm. And that one, ever since I bought it, I've been meaning to pick it up and read it. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. So that is one. And again, if you don't have one off the top of your head, that's fine. But Oh, I've got some. Okay. The, when I was going through to to see what have I read and what haven't I read, there are a lot. Now, one thing listeners may may notice is neither one of us today um, chose a book written by a woman. Mm-hmm. But they do publish books by written by women. It just has been my experience. I actually have not read them, um, yeah. which is an an oversight that I am planning to, to correct. And so, you know, of course we talked about Marguerite Young's Miss Macintosh, my darling. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also publish Anne Carson and I do love Anne Carson's work. They, they published Eros, the better sweet, the bittersweet mm-hmm. um, by her. And that one I would like to, to read. Um, they, they also, I, I don't know if, um, if you've ever read her work, but they, they published uh, Svetlana Alexievich, uh, Chernobyl prayer uh, mm-hmm. before she won the Nobel prize. And uh, that's another one I have not read. Otherwise it probably would have been on my list. Um, so that the reason for that absence is more on, on me, you know, mm-hmm. that I just haven't read those books. Uh, but I am interested in fixing that with some of those. Yeah. Um, but also, I still haven't read Goats and Meyer, which oh, uh, so I good. I've looked at a few times to to pick up to read, but I I don't have it yet. So that's one that I would like to 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 read. Ever since you yeah. you brought it up, yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I was gonna say it's funny because of all the publisher episodes we've done, Dalkey, I will say they're not one that I've read as many books as I was looking through the list and trying to pick out mm-hmm. the ones to highlight. I was surprised. I have not read as many Dalkey archive books as I have, for example, Archipelago or NYRB. 
And I think that was part of the reason for my having only male authors is same thing. I not purposefully, but it just turns out I have not actually read any of their books that were written by a, a woman. So it's definitely something that I need to remedy very soon. In addition to just reading more of their books in general, because mm-hmm. man, what a absolutely amazing back catalog. Like we mentioned earlier, there's so many exciting opportunities out there. So I'm really looking forward to, as we start to hear back from the, the listeners for the contest, maybe that'll be the inspiration for me to you know, pick you up some of these other books. So any recommendations, but in particular, if there's any female authors that you've read, I would love to hear that too. Yeah. All right. December 15th, listeners, get your, get your messages to us. If you're concerned that you don't know how to message us, that particular entry, find us on Twitter. I am at MOOCs, M-O-O-K-S-E. Um, you can find the same thing at Instagram, M-O-O-K-S-E. You can uh, respond to the newsletter email. You can comment in the newsletter uh, area. You can send us emails. I'm mooksandgripes at gmail.com. And we're, we're very happy to communicate that way, but also to make sure that you get your entries in. Don't miss out on this. Great way to start 2024. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Paul. Good to talk again, as always. I'm looking forward to coming back here in a few weeks. Uh, You said earlier you thought maybe we had three three weeks left, but we don't. Oh, so it's Two more episodes of 2023, and they will be our top 10 reads of 2023. Oh, boy. Buckle up. I, I still haven't made my list. I've made a list. It's just too long uh, I know. to be top 10. So I, I need to figure that out. <laughs> Me too. And just one more quick reminder to listeners, we would love to share your best mm-hmm. books of the year. So whether it's by email or a quick voice memo recording or whatever you want to do, um, be sure to get those in and we, we will share as many as we can. Um, so yeah, it's it's time for the work to begin. We have to start whittling down Man. our giant lists. Yep. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time. <laughs>